I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Heather Farrow, a clinical psychologist working with veterans at the Detroit Veterans Administration Medical Center. If you're listening to this podcast on the Rendering Unconscious podcast stream, please know there is a video accompanying this episode. Just head to Rendering Unconscious Podcast at Tripart Films' YouTube channel. If you enjoy Rendering Unconscious Podcast, please consider heading to iTunes and leaving a review so that we can reach more people. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Tripart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, tripart.net, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated for more information you can also visit my website dr vanessa sinclair dot net or the podcast main website rendering unconscious Org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Well, let's start with how she, how Miss Kamala Harris is being um, um, looked at here in the United States. So she is the first African American woman to be on a ticket for vice president and the first Asian woman for the ticket. As we know, she is Kamala Harris is biracial. Her dad is from Jamaica. Her mom is from India and they met in graduate school. And her mom is a doctor. She comes from a, a you know educated parents who have taught her about um, diversity and have taught her about politics and education and, and, and arts and everything. And her mom's a medical doctor and healthcare. And just, if you're going to be the best, be the best. So that's where she comes from and um, her parentage. She is dynamic. And I must say, I'm very proud of her because she is also my sorority sister. She went to Howard University and she pledged um, Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated and our colors are pink and green. We are the first black sorority in the United States or in the world. And so it's very exciting for us. We have a lot of um, paraphernalia now that has her name on it along with our sorority colors. And and um, when she ran for president, you know, there were some rumblings about, you know, what her role as attorney general in the state of California and the prison system and, and African-Americans being tossed into prisons for things of this nature. So there was a lot of hesitancy um, and a lot of caution. So 
when she ran for president, I was, you know, I was very, very hopeful. I was like, you know, on the heels of President Obama, it will be nice if we had another very intelligent, very competent, very learned African-American um, in the White House. And when she pulled out, I was like, well, I know this won't be the last that we'll see from her. Senator Harris is, especially with hearings, you got, we get to see her, um, how she asserted herself, how she demanded the truth from the people that she was questioning. It was, I was just clapping, just clapping. I really enjoyed listening to her and watching her. She's a tough lady and that's the kind of stuff that we need. Um, in the White House, people that know that this is this is the kind of person that I am. This is what I stand for. This is what I'm going to be about. I am pushing for this to happen, and let's talk about it. Let's get the work done. So she seems to me like a pull your you know your shirt sleeves up. Let's get to work type of a person. So I'm very excited that Joe Biden has chosen her to be his vice presidential pick. I think we all are. I'm so excited as well because I don't know about you, but I was so depressed watching everyone drop out at the primary because I really liked her. I really liked Cory Booker. You know, Elizabeth Warren would be great. Like yeah. everybody, um, Julian Castro, um, everybody would be great, but um, everybody dropped out and it was so depressing. And then when Bernie was like the last one to drop out, I didn't realize how much I had been like, pinning my hope on anybody else basically <laughs> and uh when he dropped out I just like couldn't even watch the news anymore I was like this is just the same old thing once again yeah. I just don't yeah. even want to deal with this and then yeah. when Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris I was like all right okay I'm back I'm paying attention again <laughs> same here same here I was just um I'm, I'm tired of the rhetoric and the and the, it's not even a dog whistle anymore. It's a flat out call to racism with Donald Trump. He has divided this country more than I have ever seen in my entire life. More than I've ever seen in my entire life. And I have been aware of politics since President Nixon was being impeached in the 70s. That's how long I've been aware of politics. And I remember being in my parents' Uh, living room area watching television of Nixon being impeached and I even had questions I was probably five maybe four or five years old and I was like daddy what does impeached mean or what does it what, what's going on so they told me the president did something bad so he's resigning or he's being fired so I've always been very very aware of our presidents and I was in the eighth grade when Ronald Reagan was was shot and I've just always been on the been watching the news and trying to be aware and as soon as I could vote I started voting and I have never never had such disregard toward a person in in politics as I do about Donald Trump he is a dangerous narcissist and just when you think, or just when I think he can't say anything more shocking and disgusting, he says something even more shocking and disgusting. But the thing is, I'm not voting against him, or I'm sorry, I'm not voting for Joe Biden because he's not Donald Trump. I'm voting for Joe Biden because he's got experience 
as vice president under Barack Obama. He worked very well with Barack Obama. He didn't hear any scandals. There was never any investigations with him. And now that he's chosen Kamala, I'm equally as impressed. I'm equally as invigorated and inspired to, to vote and to vote early. So that's, that's kind of where I am right now. And at one time I was like, I'm not watching the news anymore. I'm not watching it. I watched like the first five minutes to know about news, traffic and weather. And I'm turning it off because I was just so disgusted with what was going on, how he treated Governor Whitmer, our governor here in Michigan, calling her that woman. I mean, just the misogyny, the, the hate, the vitriol that this idiot speaks. It's just so disgusting. I just, I just can't, I just can't listen to him anymore. And his supporters are, are, are equally as ignorant. So that's why I'm very, very excited. And I hope that um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris prevail in, in November. I really do. You know, it's funny. My husband, Carl, he had a dream when the primaries were still happening before we knew this was the ticket, like when Kamala was still running, potentially for president. Um, Carl woke up one day and he said, I had a dream that Joe Biden won with Kamala Harris as her, his vice president. And I was like, oh, that would be great. <laughs> so when he picked her, I was like, it's Carl's dream. So that's like what's been giving me hope all year. <laughs> Well, what's also giving me hope is that there are some members of the Republican Party that are also, you know, um, they're endorsing Joe Biden. They're they're like, I can't, I cannot put myself behind this person who's in charge of the Republican Party, Republican Party. I just, I just can't. What he's doing makes absolutely no sense. The way he's handled COVID, how he's admitted to knowing about this virus, and all these people have passed away and continue to get sick and pass away from this virus that he could have stopped. I mean, just that alone. I mean, there's more to it, but just that alone should make people really open up their eyes to what he's about. So I'm just uh, prayerful and hopeful that people get out, people are inspired to vote and that they vote early because the mail system, we can't really rely on it that much now. Just get out, vote, mail your, as soon as you get your ballot, I'm dropping mine off. I'm not even going to put it in the mailbox. I'm just dropping it off. Yeah, I ordered uh, mine. So as soon as I get it, I will send yeah. it in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I'm cautiously hopeful because I felt the same hope four years ago when Hillary Clinton was running and I woke up the next day, November 4th, I was just sick. So I still want to maintain that hope and do my part by voting and encouraging people that are not registered to vote or who have no plans on voting to vote as well. We have to get this man out of office. Really and truly. So I'm really interested in the debates. Very interested in the debates. I will watch between Kamala and Pence and I just I just can't wait to see her put him in his place she's so good at that she's so good at examining people when they're Absolutely. you know in front of the senate yep and that's the kind of energy that I hope she brings and 
you know, sometimes people stay on the fence until November 2nd with who they're going to vote for. And I hope that the debates really spark people to see her personality and see her intelligence, more than her personality, but just her sheer intelligence and her wit and her way of getting to the issue and cutting through the crap. And that her personality, of course, will shine through. So, and because she, she, she's very likable. I like her. Aside from her being a black woman and being in my sorority, I still find her extremely likable. Very sharp. Very, just, just, just a great person. From what I have seen with her interviews and seen of her personally, I just really, I'm very impressed with her. So I'm really looking forward to the debate. Yeah, she's got me excited again. Should we talk about AKA? Sure. Let's talk about AKA. So I'm a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority. It's the first Black, historically Black um, sorority in the world. It was founded in 1908 on the campus of Howard University, which is where Kamala Harris graduated from. And um, our brother's sorority is Alpha Phi Alpha, also founded, well, founded at, um, I believe, at Cornell University. So Alpha Kappa Alpha, we're a female sorority, we're a black sorority, our colors are pink and green, our headquarters are in Chicago. Um, we have the tenets of education and health with subsets with mental health, um, voting, getting women to get mammograms, um, education, scholarship, um, whole families, nutrition and wellness. We're just, we do a lot of work. I had a sorority meeting today. We hold meetings monthly. I had sorority meeting today. We're, we're bound by regions. I'm in the Great Lakes region. Um, there are lots of different regions and within each region, there are different um, chapters. So I'm in the Detroit chapter and the Detroit chapter is pretty large because we're a large city. And um, when I was living in Atlanta, I was a member of that chapter and you can transfer chapters, you know, depending on where you move to. And um, it's just the best sorority ever, the best sorority. <laughs> I love my AKA. So um, yeah, I, it's, it's great to have that sisterhood. I did not grow up with sisters. That's one of the reasons why I went to an all-female college, Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia. I've got sisters within my college, mm -hmm circle and I've got sisters within my aka sorority circle that's so nice I love how supportive everyone is of each other absolutely I can go anywhere anywhere in this in the country anywhere in the Caribbean uh, we, we do have a chapter in the Middle East so I can go pretty much go anywhere in the world and if I have on my pink and green and I have on my letters, AKA, I can say, hi, Soror, or somebody can walk up to me. We're sisters, we're, we're sisters. And we have that, we have that basic foundation. It's a strong foundation. Do you want to talk about Detroit? What's it like in Detroit now? Well, Detroit is, Detroit is coming back. Um, I was not born here, but I've been living here for, oh, about 50 years, almost 50 years. And um, 
it's also called Motown, and we call it we call the Detroit the D. Um, it's mostly industrial, car, autom automotive, city, um, birthplace of techno music. So we have all of that. I love my city. I love Detroit. It's there's a certain grit. There's a certain resilience of people that are Detroiters that you don't really see elsewhere. Um, we're down to earth people. We believe in working hard. We also believe in playing hard. We love our sports teams, the Detroit Lions, the Detroit Pistons, the Detroit Red Wings, the Detroit Tigers, the Detroit Shock. We're all located in our city now. Instead of playing elsewhere in the suburbs, we're all here in the city. So that's very good. We built a Little Caesars Arena, which is in downtown Detroit. We've got Ford Field. We've got Comerica Park. We've got all of our stadiums here in the city. Um, it's a, we're on the Detroit River, which is a stone's throw to Windsor, Canada. The tunnels and the bridges are closed, except for essential workers, but it's nothing to take the bridge or the tunnel over to Windsor. And when you visited me, remember we went there mm -hmm. and had a great time. Windsor is our neighbor and it's just nice to be able to go to a whole different different country um, and you can see right across the river. Um, Detroit has a lot of historic neighborhoods. Um, it's not blight like they show on TV. I live in a beautiful, beautiful neighborhood, beautiful historic Detroit where the homes are very large. The homes do not all look the same like a cookie cutter subdivision. It's safe, it's beautiful, canopy trees, um, lots of property, lots of grass. People take care of their homes. They're proud of their homes. And we have lots of neighborhoods like that. That's not to say that we don't have neighborhoods that are run down, burned out. You know, any large urban area will have that. But now we have um, Dan Gilbert, who is our mayor, who's doing a pretty good job of bringing businesses to the city. And that's what's been happening. So we've got the world headquarters of General Motors here in Detroit. Um, Quicken Loans is also headquartered here. So we've got a lot of, a lot of things are coming here to the city and are staying here and home values are increasing. Um, it's, 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 it's a great place to be. I can't imagine living any place else. I've lived other places, but I've also found my way back to Detroit. Yeah, I really enjoyed Detroit. How do you feel like the mental health is doing there now? Um, well, when the economy started tanking in 2007 and 8, there were a lot of facilities that had to close. When I was a school psychologist, we had um, mental health facilities for juveniles and we had them for adults. Those facilities have closed because of lack of funding or cut funding. Um, so mental health is I think all over mental health is becoming a lot less stigmatized and people are actually seeking mental health in a variety of ways. Now that COVID has happened, telehealth is much more accessible for people to receive mental health. But I also, um, it's, it's very easy to get in touch with mental health here. Our sorority has um, resources so if anybody's looking for mental health, they can contact the soror. They can get them in, in touch with somebody who can help them. 
churches are becoming a lot more um, aware of mental health needs. My church, for example, um, has mental health sub a, a, a committee for that. And they also do grief counseling. And after my father passed away two years ago, I found myself needing, needing some help, just processing the grief from that and taking care of being my mom's caregiver because she has Alzheimer's and, and working full time and managing two households, my household and theirs. You know, it was just a lot, you know, navigating a new job and I found myself needing something. So I went online, found two places. My church, I found out my church had mental health services and other places in the community did. So it's, it's, it's just as close as a Google search to find mental health services here in Detroit. And so I'm, for that, I'm very, very appreciative. And it's not in an office. It could be found in a coffee shop. It can be in a restaurant. It could be in a church. It doesn't necessarily have to be in an office, which I'm very grateful for because people, you know, they're, they're hesitant about, you have to bring the mental health to them. They're hesitant about going into an office. It's a little scary. It's a little sterile. You might not be comfortable. You don't know what to do, where to go, how to even be. But because mental health now is changing for the better, making it more readily available, there's no stigma. It's like good girlfriends getting together at a coffee shop or you talk about grief or you talk about this, the stressors of being a caregiver or the stressors of divorce or being a stepmom or whatever the case may be. It's just, it, that's therapy. And I think the way therapy is being delivered, it's, it's a beautiful thing now. I'm really liking the changes that I'm seeing. You can get mental health over the phone now. You can get it through Zoom now. You don't have to leave your home to get it. So I'm seeing those changes here in the city, but I'm also seeing those changes especially in Black America, which is very, very important because we're seeing in research is showing that suicides are increasing within Black America. And in order for us to get, to, to get people treated for depression, anxiety, PTSD, um, there's still a huge stigma. But now that the face of mental health is changing, people are really coming out now. Rappers are coming out. Actors are coming out and saying, hey, I suffer from depression, I suffer from anxiety, I have an eating disorder, and I'm getting help for it. And they're saying, they're normalizing getting help. They're normalizing talking about how they're feeling, what they're going through. They're normalizing even talking about being in therapy. And so it's getting people to ask those questions, like, who do you see? So when I meet people, I tell them what I do. They're like, can you give me your card? And I said, well, I work, I, I'm, not a, I'm not in private practice, but I can lead you to where you need to be. So people are becoming a lot more open to it. And for that, I'm very, very happy. Yeah, and I think, like you said, this uh, move towards more accessible telehealth has been really helpful for people because then they can kind of try it out from the comfort of their own home, you know? Exactly, exactly. And word of mouth is really how mental health goes, I think. So you know, I've had girlfriends say, well, do you know somebody? Do you know somebody? And I'm like, well, you can do it a variety. You can contact your insurance to find what you're looking for. Somebody who specializes in adolescents or adults or women's issues or whatever the case may be, or you could ask about. 
so I'm working on being in those spaces so that I can be in the face of, of mental health too and show that it's really not as bad as people think that it is. It's not as scary. It's just having a conversation and doing some work, doing some, doing some internal work. Yeah. I hope that it becomes like as normalized as like going to the gym, you go to the gym to take care of your body. You talk to someone to, you know, take care of your mind. It's just like healthcare. It is. It's self-care too. So when I frame it as such, I feel like that makes sense. That makes sense. So I, you know, I like to, to help people push them in that direction. Like, hey, you need to talk to somebody. Talk to somebody. It doesn't have to be forever. You don't have to go on any medications. Just go talk. to. It's just having a conversation and talking about what the issue is. And seeing what the so a, a subjective person can say to possibly help you out. Exactly, get another perspective. Do you want to talk about self care in the VA? Self care, yes. So self care is extremely important due to COVID. I have been working from home quite a bit. I went from working five days a week at my facility to working four days a week at home. So during that time, I've had a lot of free time to figure out some things that make me happy because there's no contact with people. We have contact through Zoom. We have limited contact um, going to the grocery store. Everybody's six feet apart. Everybody has masks on. You can't see people smile. You can't see people saying hello to you. You can't see and, 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 and engage with people like normal. So. I've been doing some self-care. I've been cultivating herbs um, and plants and flowers, and I've been watching nature. I've been watching this one blue jay that likes to come visit on my front stoop, and there's a squirrel. We have black squirrels here in Detroit, so they're very beautiful. They're black, and I saw one black squirrel who had a brown tail, like a blonde tail, and I've made friends with that squirrel, and he would visit on my stoop every morning. And I would go look for him since I, it, when I couldn't find him and I saw him up another tree. And it's just watching nature, watching my flowers grow, watching these birds play and the squirrels play with each other. Um, and it's taking time to rest and exercise and listen to Zoom um, discussions and lectures on self-care and what we can do to help with chronic pain and what we can do with mental illness in terms of depression and anxiety during these COVID times because we don't have ways to engage with others and how to recognize the symptoms and the signs of depression and anxiety and even recognizing it in myself, you know, not working, you know, these are all times where we're not doing things as normal. And then couple that with the things that's been happening here in the United States with police brutality and um, Black Lives Matter movement, I've had to practice very good self-care because I'm very sensitive to some of those things. And I have to maintain some, you know, I have to compartmentalize some things so that I can be of, of that I can be of help and, and of service to when I do go to work. So self-care for me right now is cooking meals for me and my mom. It's getting my rest, it's exercising on my bike, it's 
communicating with friends on a daily basis. It's zoning out and watching a Netflix show when I need to. It's cleaning. It's shopping online. It's going for a drive. It's watching nature and birds and squirrels play. Um, so I'm, re I'm really enjoying this part of being at home due to COVID. You know, staying safe is one thing, but as I'm being safe, I'm still cultivating some happiness for myself, taking care of my skin, taking care of my body, um, taking care of my mind, reading more, listening to podcasts more, listening to audiobooks more, turning the TV off more, not being so sucked into television because I'm home more, but just really paying attention to other things. Now, my job at the VA, I'm very blessed to be at the Detroit VA. I love being here and I love my job. I am the only psychologist at the domiciliary. So the domiciliary is a um, residential program for veterans who are homeless or in danger of becoming homeless and who also struggle with mental health and substance, substance abuse issues. So we have, it's a 50 bed facility. So the rooms are two to a bed. I'm sorry, two to a room. And so we have um, beds for women and we have beds for men. And we don't really get a lot of women. So it's mostly a male facility. But at the facility, we have me, the psychologist. We have two social workers. We have a nurse manager. We've got LPNs. We've got RNs. We've got a chaplain who comes once or twice a week. And we have our meals catered and um, all for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And they have nursing classes where they learn about chronic conditions such as diabetes and hypertension and chronic pain. And then we have our mental health classes. So I was teaching five classes. But due to COVID, now I'm teaching four. So the five classes I was teaching, depression, anxiety was one group where I talked about, we talked about depression and anxiety, symptoms of that. So in that could be problems with sleeping, anger management, um, smoking cessation, behavioral activation. Um, and then Tuesday, I did an art therapy class because I love to paint, I love to draw, and I love to journal. And I would talk about those things in group. And so I've got a lot of veterans who like to do the same thing. And so that's what we were doing. We would paint, we would draw, we would color, we would just talk and reminisce. Um, so that was art therapy. Wednesday was a meeting day where I was in meetings all day, where I am in meetings all day. Thursday, I teach a boundaries class. And boundaries, a lot of our veterans, a lot of people in general have issues with boundaries. They don't know how to assert themselves. They don't know how to resolve conflicts appropriately. Communication is not the best. And so during that class, I teach them how to assert themselves, how to resolve conflicts, how to use I statement, um, how to fight fairly. Um, we talk about those things on Thursday. And then Friday, we have a group called Hot Topics, where we just talk about whatever's happening, whatever they want to talk about, whatever's happening in the world. At one time, we were talking a lot about COVID, how to stay safe, what this means. We talk about domestic violence. Um, 
just whatever's going on, whatever they want to hear about, whatever I've heard about in the media that week, I'll bring it to them during our Hot Topics class. But no, due to COVID, we've discharged about half of our, more than half actually, we've got about 17 or 18 veterans now. And um, I'm just teaching four classes. I'm teaching all those classes I've mentioned except for the art therapy class. So I'm pretty busy on the two days that I do go. And because I do live close to where I work, I'll go in just to attend a meeting or to make sure a veteran is doing okay. They may need a face-to-face. -face. I may do that. Um, suicide risk evaluations, I may do those. So in person. So those are the things that I do at the VA. How has it been working in the hospital through COVID? Well, we're off-site, so I'm not at the medical center. Um, we've been we've stopped a lot of our personal passes, so veterans pre-COVID were able to go on hour-long passes to go to the store or to go to church or to go visit family. But now that COVID has been here, we stopped that, and so they understand. Veterans understand that, and some have discharged. We have some veterans that are admitted to our domiciliary because the judge ordered them to be at our facility or go to jail. So they would come to us. So some of them got permission from the judge to discharge to their home and they will be monitored with their substance use through other means. So um, it's a lot slower pace. Before I would have 20 something people in my groups and now I have 10, 11, 12 patients in my groups now. It's more intimate. We can talk a lot. Everybody can participate. It's a lot better. I like it this way. And the veterans seem to like it too. We're spread out. We can, you know, just engage a little bit more, have it be a little bit more intimate, a little bit more personable. Yeah, I feel like that's one thing COVID did was make everyone kind of slow down. Yes, everything has slowed down. And, and, but that's a, I think that's a good thing because for pre-COVID, everybody was running around. We're busy doing this, busy doing that. And now that things have shut down, you're forced to slow down. You're forced to really, and that's what I was telling my patients. Instead of thinking about COVID as, well, we can't do this, we can't do that. Think about what you can do. You can slow down. You can think about what's going on. Because you're not running so much, you're focused now more on yourself. And I think that's a very good thing. This is a beautiful thing because a lot of people run from themselves. COVID has given us a chance to really focus on ourselves so that we can work on the things that we know we need to. Exactly. And everyone's more introspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you noticed a, a ch change also towards more people understanding like these systemic issues? Because when I worked in the hospital, you know, the psychiatrists and the doctors had all my patients diagnosed with schizophrenia and schizoaffective and like all these really serious disorders. And, you know, they had symptoms of that. But the longer I talked to people, the more I just felt like this person has just been through so many traumatic experiences their entire life. Like, 
how would they how would they be any other way you know it's just like too much trauma and a lot of it was like systemic issues do you feel like people are starting to recognize that more that like a lot of these diagnoses aren't necessarily something like biologically wrong with someone but more like uh, an effect of like society and these kinds of systemic issues oh absolutely absolutely and especially because my veterans are residential i know them and when I listen, when I see that they've been diagnosed with schizophrenia, I'm like, I have not noticed any negative symptoms or any positive symptoms, none whatsoever. They're not even taking an antipsychotic medication. Where is this diagnosis coming from? I change it. I change it. I reassess them. And yes, it, it's, there is racism in, in every field, including mental health. And when I see a person, a black person in particular, diagnosed with a serious mental, mental illness, I'm always going to look at that, assess it, especially if I'm in charge of their care, their mental health care, and say, you know, this person, and, and of course, it's not just a decision that I make, I take it to the team. And like, I, I just do not agree with this diagnosis. Let's just cautiously look to see if maybe there is a psychotic break. But after they've been with us for six to nine months, their thought, their thinking, their judgment is good. Their mood has been stable. Without the use of an antipsychotic, why is this person labeled as schizophrenic or schizoaffective? So it just shows the, the trauma because that's pretty much what it is. Trauma from childhood up to adulthood with the military exacerbating it through combat, what this person has gone through. Maybe they have been molested. Maybe they have lived or grown up in a poor environment, impoverished environment where education was just not that great. Or maybe there was abuse in the home or substance abuse in the home and how that colors their outlook on life. It may look disordered, but is it an SMI? No, it's something totally different. And so that's what you have to kind of tangle through, try to untangle to get to the bottom of what's going on with them. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I also so felt good. like when I worked in the hospital, like a lot of my patients were homeless or on the verge of being homeless. And a lot of times I would end up doing a lot of like casework, trying to get them housing and stuff. Cause it's like, how are they ever going to feel stable if they don't have a stable place to live? <laughs> you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we do too. We help them get, we help give them hope. We help empower them through groups and through individual sessions with them and through um, we have something at the VA called CWT, which is Compensated Work Therapy. So they're, they are um, mental health patients, but they're given jobs to do around the VA. So it, it may be janitorial, it may be working behind a desk, it may be working in the kitchen or the canteen, but they're giving, an, uh, they're giving them a way to earn money, to be independent, to feel empowered, to increase their hope so that they can become independent rather than be homeless or dependent upon the system. So that's one good, and these are V, these, this is the way it is across the country with VA. All VAs have CWT programs or most should have CWT programs to help them with that. That's great. I wish one day all Americans will have care like the VA provides care. 
I do too. It's such a wraparound system. And I really, when I talk to other friends, you know, some of our uh, classmates that went to Nova and that work at the VA, I'd love talking to them about, so what's your VA doing about this? What's your VA doing about that regarding mental health, regarding COVID? What's your VA doing regarding substance abuse? What's your VA doing about women's health care? What is your VA doing about this? So it's really nice to see how, although we're all VAs, we're doing things a little bit different just based on what's happening in that particular city. So I really, really, really like it. And where I am on the east side of Detroit, we're going to be moving to downtown Detroit, which um, on one hand, I'm very excited about that because we're going to be um, um, collaborating with other departments, with the homeless department, with um, other departments that help veterans that are homeless and that have serious mental illness. We're all going to be under one roof rather than me being here, you being at the medical center, we're all going to be able to collaborate and meet together. So that's a good thing. And that it's going to be downtown, but the commute is going to be a little bit challenging, especially in the wintertime. Um, but I think the good far outweighs the, the not so good. So I'm really excited about that. But we're going to increase our women's facility there. So we're going to have more beds for women to be there. And when I, when I did have a handful of women at the domiciliary, I did run a women's group. And um, I really enjoyed working with women. I ran a women's group in, in, in the Atlanta VA. And we had a 10-week um, course. It was like a coping skills course. We talked about a lot of different things. Um, it was just a great class. And I really wanted to replicate that here at the Detroit VA. But we don't have the women. We just don't have the population, but hopefully when we move downtown and we're going to take women from different parts of the vision or the region. So that's going to be a good thing. And it's really great that you do these educational groups. I love it. I really do love it. And I think that based on, I'm not so sterile. I'm not so serious in group. We laugh, we talk. I, instead of me talking all the time, I said, well, what do you all think? How would you handle this particular situation? situation? We do role plays. We do, it's a very interactive um, group. And I really, really enjoy it. I think the veterans do too. They always tell me they enjoy my group. So I, I'm really happy that they, that they um, receive benefit from them. Um, should we talk about Black Lives Matter movement? Sure. What would you like to talk about? I'm happy that it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am too, Vanessa. It's, it's, mm, where can I start with that? It's a movement that has really taken up steam with the murder of George Floyd. Um, I believe it started with with Trayvon Martin and with the, with the visual of what we saw the police officers do to George Floyd, it really sparked this outrage and it really opened up the eyes of people, non-people of color, who may have heard about police brutality, but when they saw it and when they saw the, the lack of humanity in that police officer who knelt on his neck until his life ended, saw the people crying out for him to get off of his neck, 
he stayed on his neck. He's for people to see that it opened up the eyes of so many people. And that's what helped catapult Black Lives Matter into the movement that it is, where corporations are amplifying the voices of Black people. They're, I, I'm seeing it all over social media. I'm seeing it on, on commercials. I'm seeing it, and I'm really, really loving what it's standing for at this point. I, I drive through my neighborhood, and I see Black Lives Matter signs on people's lawns. And these are on lawns of people that are not Black. So that really makes me feel good. I drive through suburban Detroit and I'm seeing lawn signs of Black Lives Matter on lawns that, on homeowners' lawns that are not Black. And I'm really, really liking and appreciating that it's not just us who are screaming out that Black Lives Matter. And, but of course, there are still a lot of people that say, well, all lives should matter. And I agree, all lives should matter. But until there is equality, until there is equity in everything, because racism is systemic. Racism is entrenched in the life of America. Until Black people have that same equity and equality and say and, and opportunity, Black lives don't matter. And that's why we have to say that Black lives matter. Exactly. Um, that's what I did when I left the hospital. I felt so like kind of hopeless because I was so horrified at how my patients were treated and a lot of them were black. And um, I ended up having this conference that Tanya, our colleague and friend, Tanya White Davis came and spoke about and she spoke about um, Black Lives Matter when it was happening them and kind of systemic violence and the like, systemic abuses in the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at the number of Black women who have died in childbirth. The mortality rate for women, for Black women is so high because they're not being listened to. If they're complaining of pain, they're not being tended to. Their pain is not being addressed. And these women are dying. They're dying. And everybody, the, the, the flashlight has been turned on to all of this. Of course, there's racism. There's racism in every facet, in the judicial system, in the law enforcement system, in medicine, in everything. And Black Lives Matter movement is just showing, sh shining a light on all of this. For us to take some really hard looks at things, especially police brutality. Yeah, because there's a lot of work to do. It's like pervasive and everything. It is. I was just on social media this morning and saw that in Georgia, I don't know what city in Georgia, there was a Lyft driver whose tail light was out. So the police pulled them over and the police asked the passenger who was a black man for his ID. And I don't know what happened, but next thing I know, the black man who's a passenger who had nothing to do with the stop is on the floor, on the ground. The police are on top of him, beating him. This stuff has got to stop. And it just doesn't stop with the person, with the police officer being fired. It starts with them being charged with assault and imprisoned for murder. Like I hope that the officers in the George Floyd case get murder charges and incarceration. Yeah, exactly. It's not enough. They get suspended with pay, you know, and then they end up back working anyway. 
Like, or they get fired and they get moved to a different um, jurisdiction. Like, no, you're going to wreak havoc on somebody else in another community. No, this has got to stop. They have got to be charged. Yeah, end of story. End of story. Can we talk about John Lewis? Yes. Yes, John Lewis. He was so, just an icon, a civil rights icon. He, when I think of Mr. Lewis, I just think of like one of the greats, like Martin Luther King and Jesse Jackson, and just how strong he was, just how important he was in the fight for civil rights, for voting, for um, just for, for everything. And we're losing our icons, we're losing out, we're losing our, our great leaders. But Mr. Lewis will never be forgotten. I met him when I was a student at Spelman College and he was just so warm to the college students. I just remember that about him, just so warm. I remember him laughing, seeing him laughing and interacting with the college students. And he's just been an icon, just iconic in what he stands for, what he stood for and the changes that he's made in, in politics when it comes to just equality and civil rights. Yeah, I mean, he's been fighting for more than 50 years. Absolutely. I, I want to say he's been fighting all his life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, but I think about when President Obama and, and Mrs. Obama walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, and the hug that they had at the end of that. I just, I have that picture. I think I posted it on my social media because it just was so there's this man who's been fighting for civil rights all his life, hugging our first black president. It was just, it was a moving photo. Aww, I and miss the Obama so much. I do too. I do too. And I hope, I hope that um, when President Biden becomes elected, that that Mr. and Mrs. Obama show up for his inaugural address and for the one of the many balls that they have. That would be great. Oh, they will. Yes. They're campaigning for him. They are. And I'm really happy to see that. I'm really happy to see it. I know that Mr. Biden probably, you know, you, you want to distance yourself to make, you know, have your agenda be your agenda and not from when you were vice president to another president. But you know, I know that they they want to kind of separate themselves with that, but I say, you know, highlight all the good things that you've done while you were vice president. Mm -hmm. Highlight all of that. Highlight the relationships you've had with the different countries. Highlight what your agendas were. Highlight what you did. Don't don't fully separate yourself. Use that to your advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> Obama had record numbers turning out to vote. For him yes. to become president. Yes, yes. I was so happy. I was so happy. Yeah, I was really happy too because that was 2008. And like we were talking about before we were recording, 2007, 2008 was a hard time with the economy collapsing. And um, that really, him getting elected really brought, brought the hope back. 
It did. It really did. But you know, over the years, over his eight years, it really also created, and with the present president, it really stirred up this underbelly of darkness that just became anti-President Obama and became anti-Black and anti-immigrant and anti-anything white. And this Mexican wall and this go back to your own country rhetoric. It's just so disgusting and so hurtful and divisive. And I just want all that to go away. I just want that to just go back to the depths of hell where it came from. Exactly. When when uh, Trump got elected, my friend Kyron Armand, he said, well, I, you know, of course we were all devastated. And he was like, well, what did everybody <laughs> think was going to happen? Did they think that America was just going to ride on the, the coattails of all these enslaved people and all the people they stole this land from and just like keep making more money and it would all be fine? He's like, <laughs> he's like uh, eventually it had to give. And I was like, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's true. And I'm glad that the movement has, has unfortunately, it, it, well, it's been going on for such a long time. I mean, look, look back at slavery times, look at what happened with Emmett Till. Um, and all the stuff that hasn't been filmed. That's what I, I hate to even think about. You know, with the emergence of cell phone and camera phones and things like that we're seeing a lot of this stuff we're seeing it what about the stuff that we haven't seen mm. what about those horrific things you know so i'm glad that we're in an era now where we can show the brutality of the police we can show it we see it almost every single day we see these people calling people ugly names and doing despicable things and they're losing their jobs for it, which I'm very happy about. They're being ridiculed for these things because of these disgusting thoughts and ideas that they have. I'm glad that they're doing all, I'm glad that all of this stuff is coming to light. Yeah, I can't help but think of it like psychologically that like as a society, people had just kind of tried to bury all of this and pretend it wasn't happening and look the other way. And now mm -hmm. it's like, no, you have to, it's coming to the surface and it needs to be addressed and worked through. And then hopefully we can move forward in a better way. I hope so. But you know, when Colin Kaepernick took his knee for the NFL, um, people became very one-sided with their thoughts. They thought that he was protesting the flag. I'm like, no, he was protesting police brutality. This is what he was protesting. Mm -hmm. But you had a lot of people who just did not want to listen to that because it would require them to really think about some things and change their opinion of ideas and ideologies that they've held for so long. And that's the thing about growth. You can't remain the same. You shouldn't want to remain the same. You should want to be challenged on your thoughts. How else can we grow? How else can we just be better human beings if we're constantly thinking that everybody is good, everything is good, this didn't happen to me, so it didn't happen to you. That kind of thinking is just so silly. It's so destructive. When I say that this is my experience, I expect for you, I expect for you to listen to me with empathy and believe me. Not just say, well, you know, no, I've never heard of that. So I think you're misunderstood. No, this is what's happening. 
And this is why he knelt. And why people are gonna be required to force themselves to look at things different. You know, start small and just take different steps on just being a better human being. Listen to other people, take a different perspective. If it didn't happen to you, it doesn't mean it never happened. And I practice that in my own life. How you become empathic and how you become just a, a better human being. Yeah, and I think the Black Lives Matter movement was able to like get more steam behind it also because because everybody was on pause because of coronavirus. And so they were looking at themselves and looking at what was happening instead of being caught up in their day-to-day work, going and doing all of these things and being distracted. Mm-hmm. And because like, of COVID, people were able to march much longer because people were not working or they're working from home. They can take a break and go march or they can take a break and protest. They can do these things. So yeah, I just hope that we continue this, this wave of being woke and being clear and having that vision of looking at things a lot differently now and demanding change. Demanding change. It's time. Enough's enough. Enough is it's been enough. It has been enough. It's time for change. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Heather Farrell. For more, please visit the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated for more information you can also visit my website drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website rendering unconscious Org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.
Thank you. 